Week one, we looked at what the Bible says about healthy church leadership in terms of the biblical office of elder. Week two, last week, we looked at the authority that was given to the church. God's people gathered together and how he's given them the final earthly authority to render judgment about what constitutes a true gospel confession and who is indeed a true gospel confessor. Today, we get to look at the very popular topic of church discipline. Church discipline is often misunderstood, and my goal and my hope, my prayer is that as we look at this today, we will see the instructions of our Lord and Savior, King Jesus, and we will learn more about what healthy church discipline is. So join me in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. If you're new to the Bible, that's okay. Uh, Matthew is going to be your first book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Uh, Matthew 18, uh, the big numbers is going to be your chapter. Smaller numbers will be your verses. We're going to look at verses 15 through 20. I'm going to be bouncing around a little bit uh, as we kind of look at more of a topical discussion of what church discipline is. But uh, in Matthew 18, 15 through 20, we really get the instructions on how to do it. Uh, so that's uh, where we will spend a lot of our time because it really gives us, hey, this is the, it's an instruction from our Lord. So we, we got to take it serious, and we'll talk more about that here in a moment. But Matthew 18, 15 through 20, I'm going to read this for us, and uh, I'll be reading from the ESV. If you need a Bible, we have some in the back. Feel free to take one. That's our gift to you if you do not have one. Matthew 18, 15 through 20, I'm going to read this, and then I'll pray and ask God for his help during this time. Matthew 18, 15, uh, listen to the words of God. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if, we, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Let us pray. Father, before us this morning, we have a, a very instructive text. And Lord, this is something that must be taken seriously. So Father, I would ask that you would just help us, Lord, to just be changed today. That every person that walked in here would be changed, be transformed, would leave different than they walked in. 
Some by the conviction of their sins. Some by the burden, the least they're carrying as they come face to face with Jesus. So Lord, I just ask that you would help us today. I need your help. Help us to just submit to the authority of your word. And we ask what we know not, you would teach us, and what we are not, you would make us, and what we have not, you would give us by your grace, for your glory, in Christ's name, and God's people said, amen. The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, there is no purpose in having a basis or a confession of faith unless it is applied. So we must assert the element of discipline as being essential to the true life of the church. And what calls itself a church which does not believe in discipline and does not use it and apply it is therefore not a true church. End quote. This is quite the indictment provided by the greatest preacher of the 20th century. It's essentially saying that if you don't practice church discipline, you are not indeed a true church. And I would agree with Lloyd-Jones that church discipline is a mandatory component of a true church. And why? Well, because in the five verses that we have before us today that I just read, Jesus gives us specific instructions on practicing and applying church discipline. So it's only right that we assert that church discipline is something that is commanded by Jesus and something a church must practice to maintain its existence as a true church. But we all know that discipline isn't something that humans are naturally fond of, something that we're just naturally attracted to. So it only makes sense that many churches have abandoned the practice of church discipline, or many that call themselves Christians avoid churches that fully and faithfully practice church discipline as Jesus instructs. But brothers and sisters, as I have said throughout this series, we have got to remember that the church is Christ's church. It is his church. It is his bride. And we must follow the instructions that Jesus has given to us if we wish to remain faithful to our Savior. So this just naturally means that a True church must practice church discipline. So let's answer the question, what is church discipline? And I think this is where we need to start because part of the problem is that many people have an incorrect view of church discipline. And I think this is usually attributed to either misinformation or misinterpretation of the Scriptures Or some may even have a personal experience of an unhealthy practice of church discipline. I mean, unfortunately, that happens. It happens often. Uh, 
Many have abused the practice of church discipline and misapplied the instructions of Jesus to create an environment of fear or shame. And this is the result of living in a fallen world, right? We, we live right now in the in-between. Although we have been saved from the bondage and eternal consequences of our sins, we have not been finally saved from the effects of living in a fallen world. So, brothers and sisters, we will continue to encounter sin. We'll feel the effects of it. And just like some marriages, they don't last and they are riddled with unhealthy behavior, it doesn't mean that we throw out God's design for marriage. We don't give up on aiming to obey Jesus in our marriages. And such is the case with church discipline. Right? We, we don't give up on it. We don't say, okay, well, we just ignore the instructions to practice church discipline because some have abused it. So what is church discipline? What is the biblical view of church discipline? First, I want to give you a definition, and then I'm going to give us two categories to kind of look at church discipline in. So here's a definition. There's much that can be added to this, but this is just for a succinct definition of what church discipline is. Church discipline is the loving practice of confronting someone in unrepentant sin with the goal of seeing that person repent and be fully restored for their good and God's glory. Let me say that again. Church discipline is the loving practice of confronting someone in unrepentant sin with the goal of seeing that person repent and be fully restored for their good and God's glory. So church discipline is a loving confrontation. Okay, it's, it's not meant to destroy. It's not meant to belittle. It's not meant to shame. It's not meant to just make yourself feel better by pointing out the faults of another. The goal is always repentance, and restoration, that is the end goal of all healthy practices of church discipline. Look at verse 15 real quick. What does he say? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And then if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So essentially saying, you go and you attempt to gain. It's not an attempt to cut off. It's not an attempt to, to shame someone. When we confront someone in their sin, the goal isn't to say like, gotcha, <laughs> look at you. I, I knew you would never change. Yeah, I mean, you're just that same old person. Look at you. Good grief. Get yourself together. In the same way, a parent lovingly disciplines a child in order to help that child grow into a healthy, mature adult. The church lovingly exercises discipline to help one another grow in spiritual maturity. We should all want to grow. 
We, we should all want the, the sins that we struggle with now to not be the same sins we struggle with next year, the year after. We want to grow in our holiness. And as we grow, as we continue in this life, God has given us the good gift of one another, the body of Christ, to help to ensure growth is taking place. Now, I want to give us two categories to kind of expand the definition here, help us to kind of think, uh, compartmentalize what church discipline is here. Two categories. First would be formative discipline. So there's a, a formative discipline. That would be kind of a, a, where we're being formed generally. Uh, that happens in preaching, right? We are generally being formed. It's, it's shaping us. We're hearing things that maybe press against some of our ideas. We're being confronted by sin through the preaching of God's Word. This also happens in Bible studies. As people come together, they study God's Word. They let God's Word do the work that it's intended to do, to challenge, convict, reprove, correct. What also happens in one-to-one discipleship relationships is people get to know you and they get to speak into your life and uh, you confess sin to them and they, they challenge you in certain areas. And this happens in our small group environments, daily activities with Church members, as they come into your home, you practice hospitality, which we all should practice. And they see how we live and just the formative way that we're all continually just being disciplined, right? We're, we're growing in grace. We're, we're learning and seeing our faults. And then we're being reminded of God's grace. But we're aiming to grow and to, by the power of the Spirit, change. It's important to have these relationships, right? We, we've got to have these relationships. We, we must have these relationships because they essentially give birth to the second category, and that is corrective discipline. Corrective discipline. You can't have corrective discipline without formative discipline, relational discipline that just happens naturally. Now, corrective discipline would be uh, specific to individual sins, it's something that is uh, someone sees and they, they call out. They say, hey, brother, sister, this is something that I have uh, witnessed in you and, and I'm concerned for you. We see this process here laid out in Matthew 18, right? Something specific has happened. There's something that is going on here. In verse 15, right, if your brother sins against you, you, you tell this person, his fault. There's something to point out here. There's a specific fault that needs to be corrected. And this is where things get hard. Uh, This is where the, the rubber meets the road and the relational equity you have with someone is actually tested. You see like, hey, do, do I really have relational equity with this person? Either to trust their counsel and say, yeah, I know they're doing this in love. Remember, it's a loving practice. Or to go to someone that have a really awkward conversation and say, brother, sister, 
this seems to be a repeated pattern in you. And uh, man, I'm concerned for you. I love you. And this is where relational equity is really tested. But it is a loving thing to do. And it is important for the well-being of the person and the church as a whole. So church discipline, it's a loving practice of confronting someone in unrepentant sin with the goal of seeing that person repent and be fully restored for their good and God's glory. Two categories, formative and corrective. Now, why is it important? Why is it important? Well, I'll give you four reasons why. Number one is because God models discipline for us. God is perfect. Everything God does is good. So we must look at our God, our creator, and say everything that the creator does, we as his people We should take and say, these are good things that we should try, and so much as we can, do ourselves. Hebrews 12, 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. He disciplines the one that he loves. Now, sometimes we don't like that discipline, but it's a loving thing to do. And our Father models discipline for us, so we should aim to model it for one another. Uh, Jesus, also talking to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3.19, says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Remember, he's talking to the seven churches there. He's, he's giving some of them different uh, indictments. He's encouraging, ex- exhorting them. And this is what he says to them. A second reason why it's important here is because uh, discipline produces wisdom. Discipline produces wisdom. Proverbs 12.1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. That's what it says. Look it up. I'm just the messenger. So essentially what we see here is that there is one that loves reproof, loves correction. And the question we must ask ourselves, are we the one that loves reproof or are we the one that hates Reproof. I'll let you put yourself in your own category there. I think this is a clear message to us that we should all welcome discipline as a good gift from God. Third reason why discipline is important is because discipline creates good leaders. Discipline creates good leaders. Proverbs 10, 17. Whoever heeds Discipline shows the way of life, but whoever ignores correction 
leads others astray. So there's, again, we see these two categories. There's the one that receives discipline, and because of his willingness to receive, he is leading others well, leading them towards life. But the one that rejects discipline leads others astray. Now, I will let the Holy Spirit work in you to put yourself in a category once again. Where do you want to be, brothers and sisters? Number four, discipline helps protect Christians. Discipline helps protect Christians. And there's three categories here I want us to think through. So under the category or the heading of the protection of Christians, there's three different things. One, it protects them from internal damage within the church. Protects them, too, from external damage outside of the church. And number three, eternal damage. So there's internal damage, external damage, eternal damage that we see protection from. Now, internal damage would be protecting Christians and the church itself. Uh, If you would turn with me real quickly to 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. I want to read this uh, account here. Paul's talking to the church in Corinth. Uh, There's some really sick stuff going on. There's a man who is sleeping with his stepmother. And um, Paul gives some very stark instructions here. He tells them, this is how you handle this matter. And there's a few things that I think are important for our conversation as we look at really what the internal damage and how discipline protects us from that. First uh, Corinthians 5, 1 through 13, it says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. Remember, we talked a little bit about that last week. The congregation, the church membership coming together to exercise authority. Here's another example of that. He says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Here again, we see the the point, the goal is restoration of this man. Then in verse 6, he says, your boasting is not good. Do you, this is where I want you to pay attention here. We'll double click here for our our, our time and, and the category we're talking about here. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse, cleanse out the old leaven is that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 
Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Then he goes on and says, "I, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people, not at all meaning the sexual immoral of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Saying, so I'm not just talking about what's happening outside there. I'm talking about what's happening in the church. There's a situation happening that something needs to be addressed. He goes on and says, don't even eat with this person. And uh, yes, he is speaking here about the Lord's Supper, uh, but there's obviously there's implications here of, of gathering uh, fellowship with that person in some way. So Paul instructs them to confront him because he says this person's sin is detrimental to the church. It, it is some internal effects that are going to take place if you do not address this sin. Little leaven leavens the whole lump. Leaven makes the bread rise. It it, it makes things happen. It spreads very quickly. And in the Bible, uh, leaven is usually attributed to sin. Essentially saying it spreads quickly. Like leaven that permeates the whole lump of dough, sin spreads in the church and eventually brings the church unwanted hardship and even judgment. So there's some internal damage that needs to be controlled and church discipline is God's way of helping to ensure that. Secondly, we see the external damage. This is kind of like, think about the witness to the world around you. So if we had a member that's living in sin and this person professes to be a member of our church, and, but they're out in the world and they're living in a way that is contrary to what our faith would be. They're not showing fruits of regeneration. So the world is thinking, well, if that's how Christians act, I don't want any part of it. Or, uh, or sadly, many think, well, I'm a Christian too now because I do the same things. And they continue that path of thinking on the way to destruction. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. Peter gives us some really good instruction here on how to and, and why this is important. He's talking to the church here. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He gives them this contrast. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You've become a child of God. And then he gives some instruction here in 11 and 12, an exhortation. He says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against 
your soul. Essentially saying, like, fight sin. Make war on sin with everything you have. And then in verse 12, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So there's something that happens when the church lives as God's people. It's for our good, and it's for his glory. Charles Spurgeon once said, In proportion as a church is holy, in that proportion will its testimony for Christ be powerful. Brothers and sisters, we, we must live as a holy people. We must be a people that pursue holiness. And church discipline helps us in that charge. Third, church discipline protects from eternal damage. Protects from eternal damage. This is what could happen if someone continues in unrepentant sin. Someone continues to just uh, pursue their sin, ignore the warnings of those around them, and essentially stiff arm what is being taught to them through the word. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven through 32, uh, talking about the Lord's Supper here. This is what Paul tells the church in Corinth again. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. It says, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. It says, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. That is a staggering warning. It's a staggering reminder to us that we've got to take sin serious. And there's some internal examination that happens before we observe the Lord's Supper, professing that we are His. There's a judgment that is coming for those that claim to be Christians but do not live in a way that looks anything like Christianity. We have to take this serious, brothers and sisters. The modern church has become far too flippant and casual with sin. When we fail to address sin in the church, we fail to protect the church from internal, external, and eternal damage. Let me give you two illustrations. I coached basketball for many years, and one thing that I 
usually tried when I was a coach was just to impress like fundamentals on the players. Like fundamentals, right? Do the small things right and the big things, the harder things, just they, they kind of work themselves out. You build a good foundation. Uh, shooting form is something that's extremely important if you want to be a good shooter. Okay, there's certain things you have to do to, to shoot the ball correctly, right? Elbow in, uh, you wanna, there's different things, ways you hold your, your, your arm, your hand, your wrist, the action, ways you put your, your, your uh, mitt on the ball. There's different things that happen. It really becomes more about like a, a muscle memory rather than just uh, this, you know, I'm just going to grab and I'm going to do something. There's practice that happens, that there's habits that are formed. And what you have to do when you coach, if anyone's ever coached, uh, you know that you have to teach, then you've got to correct. You're teaching. There's a lot of teaching. There's, hey, this is how you do it. You're showing them. You're modeling how to do this for them. But then you've got to correct them, right? You push in the elbow. You Say, okay, hey, square up, whatever you may be teaching. But if you don't correct someone when they're doing it wrong, you're a bad coach. You are a really bad coach. If you just allow them to continue to exercise the bad habits that they have created, there's some correction that needs to take place. Uh, maybe uh, you're a teacher, and you're a writing teacher. We've been trying to teach our five-year-old uh, proper penmanship as we homeschool him. And there's different things. There's practices. There's, okay, this is how you do it. Here's the example. There's teaching that takes place. But when his Z looks like an I, there, there's some correction that needs to take place. There's, hey, nope, sorry, buddy, that's actually not right. I love you enough to say that to you. We want to help to protect him and help to teach him. And we correct him when he's off. Same goes for the church. We must practice both formative and corrective Discipline in order to remain faithful to what Jesus has called us to do as his representatives and his final earthly authority. Church discipline is an important, essential role in the life of the church. So how do we do this? What's the process of church discipline? Uh, Go back to Matthew chapter 18, and let's just work through this as we Uh, prepare to close and really get this process of how we practice church discipline. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Let's stop right there. First, we see this individual confrontation. Mentioned that last week, right? It's an individual confrontation. We go to that person. And and once again, I would say that this usually happens in the context of a relationship. 
It's something that has happened uh, sometimes between you and that person. They've sinned against you. You need to go to them. You need to say, hey, uh, brother, sister, you've sinned against me. You go to that person. Notice it doesn't say go tell your friends. Notice it doesn't say uh, post something on Facebook without naming their name. Notice it doesn't say, like, do a gossip prayer request. That's prevalent in the church. Lord, yeah, you know, I just really want to pray for so-and-so. We know what they're doing. No. Go to them, and you attempt to gain that person. You want to gain the relationship um, against you, it says here uh, in the ESV, but it's omitted in many manuscripts. Um, I would say that it's a better, just kind of a, a general uh, term here of just that um, that one has sinned in a, a general term. If your brother sins or if a Christian sins, you go and you tell him. The goal is to gain. The goal is to help to restore this brother or sister. But then we see, okay, so that's step one. There's individual confrontation. Step two, verse 16. But if he does not listen, so something's happened here. Uh, Brother or sister has not listened to you. They're not receiving instruction. So what do we do? Take one or two others along with you. So you go back. You go back to that person once again. We don't gossip. We'll make posts. We'll go around and talk bad about the person. We don't say, oh, I'm never talking to this person again. They've offended me, and now they won't even admit they're wrong. Look at them. Shame on them. I'm taking the high road. Just take one or two others along with you. That every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So what happens now? There's a group confrontation. There's a group. You're, you're, you're taking a few. You're, you're going to this person. And listen, when you bring those others along, when you tell them about what's going on, you got to be careful not to gossip there too. I mean, give them the facts, the details that are the facts, what exactly has happened, not your perception of it. Oh, they did this, and they did this because whatever. But what happened? They've hurt me. They've stole from me. They've whatever. They continue to do this. So I'm, I'm asking you to join me as I confront this person in an attempt to gain them back. This uh, two or three witnesses that is a principle that is uh, given to us here is established in Deuteronomy 19.15. So it's an Old Testament uh, principle here, uh, uh, a requirement. It says a single witness shall not suffice against a person of any crime or for any wrong in connection with an offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be Established. So what the witnesses do is they come together and they decide if this charge of sin is actually valid. They become kind of this smaller jury that determines, yeah, you know what, that, that sounds like that person is in sin. Yes, they, they would not repent. They, they're still not 
repenting. They're continuing to walk in the sin. So, so now what do we do? What do we do? Verse 17. So after we've brought to that group confrontation here, we're, we're trying to establish better judgment, bring in more witnesses. Maybe you're being a little emotional. You're being a little sensitive. Uh, maybe that brother or sister tells you, like, actually, you know what? That really wasn't that bad that they did to you. Or, or maybe you've perceived something wrongly, and it was something that was out of character for that person, and they've moved on, and, but maybe it's not. 17, if he refuses to listen to them, meaning that two or three, then who do you tell it to? You tell it to the church. You tell it to the church. Now, it's important to note here that this is not a like three and done thing, right? It's not a, okay, I went to them once, then I took two or three, and now it's the church, right? I mean, sometimes this is a long process that takes months, year even. We have to look at each situation as specific and individual. There are different times and different situations that require different courses of action. In 1 Corinthians, the sin was so heinous that it was immediate. Remember, Paul says, like, hey, get them out of your midst immediately. Like, this has got to stop. There's other instances where the Removal, the bringing before the church, making it public to the church, the members of that body, is a, is a slower process. It's a countless counsel with said brother or sister who is continuing to walk in unrepentant sin. It is a continued plea with that brother or sister. Like, brother, sister, we love you. But here we see process. We see instructions. We see that there's something that has to be done with sin. We don't say, oh, well, sheep will be sheep. You know, people will just be people, oh, well, hey, the world's doing that, so it's okay. They're not really that different than the culture. No, we are a holy people, people that have been set apart, trophies of grace, for God's glory. Here's kind of how it would happen. So, say for example, someone is walking in unrepentant sin, and the whole idea of how do we take it to the church, like what does that look like? And I think a lot of people get a little confused there. There's a misunderstanding there. And so what would happen, this is a very hypothetical uh, scenario. This is not, did not happen. It's not going on right now. But just a, a hypothetical example uh, that say there is someone that is um, abusing their spouse. And so we've gone to this person. And we've said, hey, uh, brother, sister, you're, you're abusive in one form or another. And um, we, we know that this is going on, and uh, we, we ask you, I'm, I'm asking you personally, one-to-one, I'm asking you to stop. You, you've got to stop this. So a week goes by, two weeks go by, and there's another report of abuse. There's no repentance. There's continued on, and, 
and you meet with the person, they you kind of say like, ah, you know what, but you don't understand who she is. You just, you know, she just continues to push my buttons, man. She's just, man, you, you don't know her. And maybe individual goes back to that person. Hey, listen, brother, I, I, I don't care who she is, what she's done. You cannot abuse your wife. So say, said person still, just, you know what? All right, yeah, man, whatever, dude. I'm just, I'm really not, I'm really not listening to this, you know. You, know, you, you do what's right in your home, stay out of my business. We hear that a lot. And remember, when you sign up for membership, you, you, you're opening the door to accountability. So then there's two or three. Sometimes elders get involved there. The elder jumps into situation. They help to bring some counsel, some wisdom here. Maybe there's another brother, sister that, that knows the situation, knows the couple. They have a relationship. So then they go to said brother. They, hey, listen, tell us what's going on. What's, what's happening here? Like, like, how is this taking place? How do you, you continue to do this? And you're essentially just kind of saying, like, yeah, it's okay. And maybe said brother doesn't receive that instruction as well. Maybe it's another return. You've got to get her out of there. There's abuse. There's physical harm that's going on here. So there's some type of maybe removal and figuring out that type of situation. How do we provide safety for, for, for wife and for kids if they're involved? And if there's no repentance, there's no uh, seeking repentance there, there's, a, there's then the element of church in a members meeting. Church, we, we have a situation. And if you know Bob, th- this is a hypothetical situation. There's Bob in here. He is not that I know of abusing his wife. If you know Bob, listen, we are placing him under church discipline, meaning that we can no longer affirm his profession of faith because he is not living as a Christian. His words and his actions, they don't match. So listen, and this is not to shun Bob. This story is elevated, hasn't it? First it went from hypothetical, I don't know. Like now there's a Bob, there's a person. All right, so we've got a name around it, Bob. So we've said Bob has... he, he is abusing his wife, so we've had to step in, we've had to intervene, and we're placing Bob under church discipline. If you know Bob, go after Bob. Pray for Bob. The goal is to what? Repent, restore. But also, Bob's wife, Bob's kids, we've got to care for her. They're still members. We have to serve them. So, hey, meal train, let's get to work. Hey, brothers and sisters, Let's get to work. And that's what church discipline does. It surrounds that member, those members, and says, hey, we, we love you. We want to care for you. We want to see restoration. And then we counsel. And we help to, to bring Bob and Bob's wife to, to the table to talk about what's going on. Now, some cases, maybe in this hypothetical situation, Bob is not welcome on Sunday morning because there's a fear of 
Bob in that congregation. But typically, generally speaking, as long as there's no abuse, as long as there's not someone that's in danger, as long as we have not found out that someone is harming others, Bob is still welcome to worship with us. I have no doubt that there are non-Christians here today. There are non-members of our church. And you're welcome to our gathering. We are happy you are here. Sunday morning gathering is open to anyone. But excommunication, church discipline, when it, when it shows its final hand, says we've excommunicated, meaning you are removed from communion, which is that identification of God's people. That's why as a church, before we observe communion, we'll say, hey, you're welcome to join us if you are a member of this church, a baptized believer, member of this church or another church, because there's an accountability process. I mean, this is just, we fence the table even for, for our sake. We're administering the elements. We've been ordained to do that as elders, and we want to make sure that we are protecting the table, so we're fencing the table. And in that situation, if Bob had joined us in that service, then Bob would not be permitted to take communion because we would say, Bob, you're, you're not a believer. It's for Christians. We affirm one another's confession of faith publicly one time by baptism, the sacrament of baptism, and publicly two by the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. That's the ongoing reminder that we are brothers and sisters, blood-bought by Jesus Christ. So that's situation church discipline would be played out. And then Jesus goes on, and he says here in verse 18, he gives us some real confidence in these situations. Because, I mean, what I just laid out is a lot of work. I mean, that, we're talking about lives here. We're talking about hard, tough conversations. We're talking about some things that take some time, some energy, some effort. But Jesus says, says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now this language of binding and loosing again that we, we saw in Matthew 16 last week, we, we talked about it. The church once again has the authority to verbalize what has happened in heaven. To, to bind is to prevent, to loose is to allow. That's what those terms mean there. Essentially what happens is saying the in and out of heaven. Remember, we're identifying those that profess and protect the gospel. And then in 19 and 20, he says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So Jesus says, hey, listen, if you do the biblical practice, if you observe the instructions I have given to you, I'm with you. Like, you're, you're not alone in this endeavor. He promises his aid when this process 
uh, is observed. He promises his aid in the midst of the hard topic of church discipline. The church agrees on a path of action. They ask the Father to sustain them in it. Say, you've got to help us here. Anything here translates pragma, which normally refers to a, a matter or a task. So there's something specific happening here. And Jesus promises the Father's presence when two or three are gathered in his name to ensure that the church acts as much as possible as the bride of Christ. Essentially says, listen, when you work, you do the hard stuff to protect my bride, I am with you. I will be with you. I'll be right there with you, working along the way. Brothers and sisters, this isn't an easy process. Church discipline isn't an easy thing. That's why so many avoid it. But I would appeal to you that it is the biblical process corrective discipline to ensure the purity of the church. We must ensure the purity of the bride of Christ. So I just want to close with uh, really three questions for you. Three questions for you as we close. One, who are you regularly confessing your sin to? I mean, think of that person's name right now. Who do you regularly confess your sin to? Number two, who do you have a relationship with that creates a pathway for healthy, formative discipline outside of Sunday mornings? Are you just showing up on Sundays and consuming and maybe you'll help every once in a while and you know, you're really disconnected from the life of the church. Hey, let, me, let me just encourage you, warn you. This is not the model that Jesus has given us. His model of discipleship happens every day of the week. Sunday's not an event. We check off. This is where we come together as God's people to worship the one that saved us, that makes us brothers and sisters. I would just exhort you that church membership, church, I mean, the being plugged into the life of a local church is essential for those that call themselves Christians. Last question, and it's all relative, is how are you investing in the lives of others to ensure their spiritual Maybe you have someone that you confess to and someone that's mentoring you, but find someone else. We need these tracks of interwoven, a tapestry of discipleship where formative discipline is taking place within the life of the church. We want to prevent corrective discipline as much as we have the chance. So church, this is one of the distinctives 
that we see given to us by Jesus himself. So let's observe it. Let's do it the right way with the goal to restore, to gain, and to grow as God's people. Let me pray. Father God, you are so kind to us that you would first, you would send your son to die the death that we deserve so that we can get the life we don't deserve now and for eternity is just amazing grace. So, Father, as we now live together as your people, as we pursue holiness, trusting the good gift of the church to help us along that journey, Father, would you just help us to go today in a way that would just be challenging to us, encouraging even, You've given us brothers and sisters to spur us along in our pursuit of Christ-likeness. Help us to be a church that does live different. There's a model to the world around us of what Jesus Christ can do when he changes the hearts of men. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.